Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of child abuse, domestic violence, gun violence, drunk driving, and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Americans live in fear of going to the hospital, not only due to illness or injuries, but for the financial cost. Even basic care can run up bills in the thousands, and health insurance only covers so much for those who are lucky enough to have it. Patients without insurance might be able to find providers who charge lower costs through community resources or healthcare.gov. But still, with rising supply costs and other factors, it's not always easy for providers to remain accessible to all. While medical practitioners have long faced this tug of war, some have found ways around it. Dr. John Dale Cavanus was one of those people. Dr. Dale, as he was known, was a hero in the impoverished town of El Dorado, Illinois. In the 1970s, he was a general practitioner whose patients adored him. That's because he often didn't charge a cent for his services. And while many saw Dale's behavior as a Robin Hood-like commitment to equality, the truth was that his financial maneuvering went far deeper and darker than anyone knew. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm happy to be here to offer Alistair some medical insight into our first installment of the case of Dr. John Dale Cavanus. Dr. Dale was a GP in Illinois whose story twists and turns around every bad corner a doctor could ever imagine, and always managing to make the wrong turn. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first of two episodes on Dr. John Dale Cavanus, an Illinois physician suspected of killing his own sons for insurance money. Today, we'll discuss Dr. Dale's reputation as a town hero and his alcohol-fueled wrath at home. Then we'll investigate the mysterious death of one of his sons in 1977. The tragedy seems like a cold case, until yet another nightmare occurred. Next week, we'll follow the tangled search for the truth and Dale's worst enemy in the face of the law, himself. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. 
but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. In 1953, 28-year-old Dr. John Dale Cavanus and his wife, 25-year-old Marion, reached their first wedding anniversary. They celebrated in their home, located in McLeansboro, Illinois, and splurged on steaks and champagne. As they toasted to their love, Marion looked toward the horizon. According to Darcy O'Brien, author of Murder in Little Egypt, the young wife dreamed of venturing somewhere like New York or Paris to plant roots. And what better time to share than on this special occasion? With a sparkle in her eye, she expressed these hopes to her husband. Dale's expression went cold. He poured himself another steep glass of champagne, then interrupted Marion. He reminded her that, yes, McLeansboro was an underprivileged city, but that was the point. Dale made sure that his medical services were accessible to all. He worked late at Hamilton Memorial Hospital so patients wouldn't have to take off work to see him. In fact, Dale even waived outstanding charges. He asserted that he was running a doctor's office, not a collections agency. This was what made him the town's most beloved physician, a local hero. Plus, Dale had grown up nearby, so he felt it was important to give back to his community. He reminded his wife of all this as he downed his champagne. Marion pressed a little harder. They didn't have to leave today, but someday? Dale stood and walked over to his wife. Marion lifted her chin toward him, expecting a kiss. Instead, he hit her in the face. Marion froze in shock. Then she rushed out of the room and locked herself in the bathroom. Dale poured himself another drink. The couple didn't speak for the rest of the night. The next morning, Dale saw the bruise on Marion's face and asked her what happened. She was taken aback. When she timidly recounted the previous night's events, Dale claimed he couldn't remember a thing. We all know, Alistair, too much alcohol can bring out the worst in people. The reason for this is that alcohol inhibits the function of the brain's frontal lobes, which house functional regions directly tied to cognition, decision-making, impulsivity, and social cues. Because drinking disrupts our thought processes so much, it's pretty easy for people to misread or misjudge their own behavior or that of others. 
It's also not uncommon for people with a high enough blood alcohol level to black out, despite appearing awake and conscious. During an alcohol-induced blackout, the brain stops a process called memory consolidation, which is when the hippocampus stores long and short-term memory. Someone who's blacked out has essentially stopped forming new memories, and it's usually the last stop on the road to falling asleep. This can be a major danger for people with alcohol issues, and Dale should have sought help after hearing about what he'd done. But instead of seeking help, Dale convinced Marion the outburst was an isolated incident. He'd never hurt her before, so she figured he just had too much to drink that night. Marion forgave Dale. Even though they seemed to squash this issue, the conflict over where to settle down continued to strain the young couple's relationship. And Dale found more ways to exert power over his wife. In 1954, about a year after their first anniversary, Marion gave birth to a little boy named Mark. Dale continued working while Marion stayed home to care for the baby. Around this time, one of Dale's colleagues offered to sell him their practice. It was located in his hometown of El Dorado, Illinois, not far from McLeansboro. Much of the clientele there were wealthy, but it was also close enough that Dale's McLeansboro patients could still see him. Dale was thrilled at the opportunity. He could build his own wealth without abandoning his less privileged clients. He told Marion to pack her bags. Once again, she was taken aback. Moving was stressful enough, let alone with a baby. But when Dale told her about the higher salary he'd command at a private practice, she acquiesced. She thought it might be a step toward the life she wanted. So the young family made their way to El Dorado. Dale's selfless reputation followed him there, and while he did gain patience with deeper pockets, he still had bills to pay. But Dale had no trouble making it all work. That's because his business model wasn't entirely altruistic. Even in McLeansboro, he'd had a way to provide care indiscriminately without digging himself a hole. He lied. Dale encouraged his staff to fudge the numbers on insurance and workers' compensation forms. By doing this, his practice received extra payouts that balanced the checkbooks. Doctors often work with insurance companies to get people the treatments they need for the best possible price, but blatantly falsifying information is considered fraud. While many choose not to, private practitioners who elect to take insurance first determine a diagnosis and identify the corresponding billing codes, which are then submitted to the insurance carrier. Sometimes, to try and cheat the system, a dishonest doctor may claim false diagnostic codes to squeeze extra money out of an insurance company to line their own pockets. It's actually a phenomenon that's become more prevalent in recent years, largely seen as a reaction to policies that made insurance companies more fiscally conservative in how they reimburse the doctors. This dishonesty is, of course, illegal, and for a doctor like Dale to fabricate insurance claims and workers' comp cases, the penalty could mean the permanent revocation of one's medical license and even jail time. Dale likely saw his methods as a win-win. His patients could receive care, and he could afford to keep practicing and support his family. Unfortunately for him, the law doesn't see it that way. 
Dale wasn't worried about the law, though, because his scheme was easy to pull off. He simply ticked off the boxes and signed the forms and figured if the feds ever came knocking, he could blame a clerical error. It's unclear if any patients were in on the scheme, but we know anyone who was aware wasn't bothered enough to go to the authorities. The way Dr. Dale saw it, he was stealing from bloated corporations to help the little guys. He became a local hero, a Robin Hood in his hometown. It was everything Dr. Dale dreamed of. But while the public praised Dale, his disposition at home was nothing to celebrate. Dale showed interest in his firstborn only insofar as it strengthened his image as a family man. He held baby Mark for photos, and that was it. He even discouraged Marion from picking Mark up when he cried, reasoning that doing so would turn the boy into a spoiled brat. Though the doctor's lack of fatherly instinct didn't stop the family from growing, by 1967, the Kevinus family had three more sons, Kevin, Sean, and Patrick. As the years went by, it also became clear that the anniversary incident wasn't a one-time mistake. Dale was still an abusive drunk, and was especially violent toward Mark. One evening, when Mark and Kevin were preteens, the two were playing catch inside the house. Annoyed, Dale warned the boys to stop, but they didn't listen. So Dale stormed to the kitchen and grabbed a metal spatula. He returned to the room where the boys played, bent Mark over, and spanked him with the utensil. Mark wailed in pain, which only caused his father to hit him harder. Dale hit his son so hard, the spatula broke. So he replaced it with a wooden spoon. He then spanked Kevin. The younger boy held back tears, which only prompted Dale to taunt Mark. He told him to toughen up and be more like his brother, and that crying only resulted in more punishment. The boys lived like this all their lives, not knowing when their father might explode in rage. But if there was one thing sure to make Dale erupt, it was his finances. The doctor got involved in numerous shoddy business ventures and investments, including two farms that never turned a profit. Dale's debt eventually consumed him. Even his $200,000 salary couldn't cover it all. As the stress mounted, Dale's wrath at home became the norm. Marion was on the brink. She couldn't stand watching the boys suffer. To get her husband's attention, she made an appointment with his office receptionist, then stormed into the doctor's office. There, she confronted him about his behavior, and Dale finally told her the scope of their money problems. Marion knew something had to be done, so she started teaching nursing classes to help make ends meet. But even this didn't help, as Dale continued to make bad investments. When she realized that her husband's poor decision-making was beyond her control, Marion was through. By 1968, the pair were living separately, but Dale continued to torment the boys whenever he saw them. Three years later, Marion officially filed for divorce and told Dale she planned to move to St. Louis, Missouri. She'd take the boys with her. But on the day they were set to leave, Dale drove to Marion's house and tried to make a deal with her. 
Apparently, even though he'd always mistreated his sons, he didn't want them to go. He proposed they split them up. Sean and Patrick could live with him, and Mark and Kevin could go with her. But Marion was appalled at the idea of separating the brothers. After some back and forth, she did admit that Mark wanted to stay and finish high school in El Dorado. Dale replied, Oh no, I can't have Mark stay here. I'd kill him. Then he got back into his car and drove off, without even saying goodbye to his sons. Unfortunately, Marion was right about how hard the move was on Mark. In St. Louis, he felt homesick and lost his motivation. He was unable to complete his senior year of high school and worked odd jobs across the Midwest. Eventually, in 1975, when Mark was in his mid-twenties, he returned to El Dorado to work and live on one of Dale's farms. The years hadn't made Dale any kinder. Mark quickly resolved to save up enough to live on his own. But in the meantime, he was lonely. He missed being part of a big family. So in 1977, he called up his mother and brothers and invited them to his dad's farm for Easter. Marion was hesitant to see her ex-husband, but she could hear her son's sad tone, so she agreed. Marion and the boys arrived in El Dorado a couple of days before Easter. Dale coolly welcomed them into his home, but Mark was nowhere to be seen. Dale had no explanation. He assumed that Mark was off with friends or working. The family had no choice but to accept Dale's word. Technically, they planned to begin the festivities on Saturday evening. Perhaps Mark forgot what day they were arriving. They made excuses for another two days. On Saturday, the youngest son, Patrick, went to see a friend while Marion and the other boys went to Dale's house, where they tensely awaited Mark's arrival. None of them said it, but they knew that if Mark didn't show that night, something was wrong. As they sat around the table, the impatient Dale said he had business to attend to and would have to leave soon. This agitated Marion, which sparked an argument about where Mark could be. Then, silence filled the room. Out of nowhere, Dale said, I think he's dead. Marion thought her ex-husband only said this to upset her, so she ignored him. But Kevin couldn't brush it off. He rounded up his mother and Sean to go look for Mark. Dale didn't offer to help. Instead, he said he had an errand and rushed out the door. Marion, Kevin and Sean could hardly feign surprise at Dale's behavior. Once he was out of their hair, they got into Marion's car and headed toward the farm where Dale kept his jeep parked. Their plan was for the boys to use the jeep to scour the farm and surrounding areas. Once they pulled up, Kevin and Sean got out of the car and made their way through the unkempt grass. As Marion watched them, she noticed something bulky on the ground, just beyond the jeep. Her headlights didn't reach that far, so she squinted to try and get a clear view. At the same time, Kevin peered through the jeep window and spotted his father's shotgun on the passenger seat. Then, he saw blood splattered on the driver's door. Before he could say anything, Sean screamed. Kevin rushed to his brother's side and took in the horrible sight. Hidden in the tall grass 
was Mark's slain body. Coming up, the rabbit hole of Dr. Dale's criminal undertakings. Hi, Parcasters. It's Greg and Vanessa from the series Serial Killers. For the past five years, we've explored hundreds of history's most notorious murderers, giving listeners an intimate look at their sordid origins and heinous crimes. If you haven't had a chance to join us before, there's no better time to dive in than right now for our Serial Killers 5th Anniversary Special. It's a four-part examination into the mythology surrounding four fearsome killers. Edmund Kemper, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer. Our fifth anniversary series uncovers the men behind the mayhem, analyzing what turned them into killers and how their lethal behavior made their stories larger than life. If you've listened to the show before, we hope you enjoy. And if you haven't, this is the perfect series for any avid ParCast fan. Follow Serial Killers to hear our four-part fifth anniversary special. Listen now, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On April 9th, 1977, members of the Cavernous family discovered the dead body of their oldest son, Mark. Worse, 22-year-old Mark appeared to have been killed on a farm owned by his father, Dr. John Dale Cavernous. Kevin Cavernous quickly realized his brother had been dead for some time, Animals had devoured much of his corpse. If it weren't for Mark's belt buckle and boots, Kevin might not have even recognized him. Kevin covered Sean's eyes, and when their mother Marion got out of her car, he told her to keep back. He didn't want her to see her son like this. Then Kevin called the police, but when they arrived, he only grew agitated. Kevin watched the police drop cigarette butts and Polaroid paper near Mark's body. One deputy even removed the shotgun from Dale's Jeep to admire it without so much as dusting for Prince first. Kevin almost intervened, but then a booming voice ordered the deputies to halt. The state of Illinois' Division of Criminal Investigation had sent in Special Agent Jack T. Nolan, and he would suffer no fools. Special Agent Nolan quickly chastised his colleagues' blatant disrespect and told them to recreate the scene. Some of the detectives thought that Mark had been killed by an elaborate booby trap. They'd found the cased shotgun propped upright on an axe handle in the passenger seat, aimed toward the driver's side. A coat hanger wire was fixed at both ends, one attached to the car door by a vest, and the other clamped around the trigger. A large hole pierced the end of the gun case. Like I said, elaborate. Agent Nolan looked at the deputies as if they were speaking French. Then he walked over to inspect the Jeep himself. Inside, he found a bullet cartridge on the floorboard. The cartridge wouldn't be there if the gun fired from within its case. 
Agent Nolan realized someone built the contraption to throw off police. It seemed Mark had been murdered. Agent Nolan needed to speak with the entire family, so he had officers phone Mark's father, Dale. The doctor arrived at the scene about an hour and a half later. As Dr. Dale Cavanus walked up, Agent Nolan couldn't believe his eyes. He'd never forget the time he encountered this man six years ago, nearly to the day after the doctor killed two people in a drunk driving accident. Back in 1971, Dale had revved the gas in his pickup truck with a bottle of scotch in hand. He hit two cars, killing passengers on impact. When deputies arrived on the scene, Dale was still behind the wheel. Officers asked him if he was hurt, and he simply replied, It doesn't matter. I've got plenty of insurance. Dale was transported to the hospital, where doctors confirmed he sustained minor injuries. That's where Nolan met him. As the state's special agent, he'd been sent to question Dale. He entered the treatment room and introduced himself to the loopy, off-duty doctor. Dale just rambled on about his insurance, saying it would take care of everything. He still wasn't aware of what he'd done. Doctors broke the news to him. He'd killed a little girl. To which Dale responded, Everybody's got to die sometime. Agent Nolan was disgusted. He vowed to put Dale away for murder. But the townspeople rallied behind the beloved doctor, and he was only sentenced to three years probation and required to pay a small fine. The events from 1971 only fed Agent Nolan's distaste for the doctor. But now, standing on the man's farm, Nolan was surprised at Dale's disposition. He was devastated. He turned to Agent Nolan without defensiveness or pride and asked what happened. Agent Nolan said he didn't know, but he was going to find out. The first step was analyzing Mark's remains. His body was sent to a pathologist. Their job wouldn't be easy, considering the way Mark was found. Severe damage to remains makes it more difficult to find out what happened. But pathologists know the information authorities generally need and can do their best to help put the puzzle together. A person's time and cause of death can be largely determined by the condition of certain organs and body parts. When a death is mysterious, the heart is one organ that becomes highly scrutinized for obvious reasons. Time of death can be figured out similarly, for example, by assessing decomposition in bones, internal organs, and the skin, which goes through predictable color and elasticity changes. The stomach is another metric because the state of its contents can give clues about when someone had their last meal. Likewise, the eyes can reveal the timeline through pupillary changes by how dry they are. Luckily, Mark's remains were adequate in providing some needed answers. Pathologists determined that Mark was shot and killed on Good Friday, the day before he was found. When Agent Nolan learned of the results, he was even more certain the boy had been murdered. The family reeled at the news. On Easter Sunday, friends, family, and even Dale's patients came to the home to offer condolences. Amid the sea of guests, Marion glanced at Dale. She couldn't pin his expression. He appeared to be grieving, but he also seemed distracted, like he wanted to go about his day. 
she decided to poke the bear. According to author Darcy O'Brien, Marion approached Dale and asked him, I don't suppose all that insurance you're always talking about having covers something like this, does it? I mean, even you probably haven't thought of that. But he had. Dale revealed that two months prior, he took out a $40,000 life insurance policy on Mark with himself as the primary beneficiary. At that news, Marion spiraled. She remembered all the times Dale threatened Mark's life, but he never meant it. It was just the ramblings of an angry father, a drunk father. But the timing was too suspicious to ignore. Marion wanted to call Special Agent Nolan immediately, but she didn't want to appear like a hysteric, grieving mother. What Marion didn't realize was that Agent Nolan was nearing the same tragic conclusion. While the family grieved, Nolan had been interviewing El Dorado townspeople who knew Mark. He needed to know if someone wanted the young man dead. But as Nolan looked more closely at Mark's life, it became clear there was only one person he was ever at odds with, his father. Agent Nolan heard time and again that while Dale was a good doctor, he was also a violent drunk. And when he took to the bottle, his oldest son seemed to be his primary target. Apparently, the pair's fights were often brutal and public. The detective wasn't entirely surprised to hear this, given the drunk driving incident from years prior. But evidently, Dale's reputation had allowed him to slip through the hands of justice more than once. And even police from other counties had records of the doctor's many bar fights. Still, Dale hadn't faced consequences. It seemed that most town people felt that his service to the community outweighed whatever he did on his own time. But not this time. Nolan had a murder to solve. He dug up everything he could on Dale, including his finances and his insurance policy on Mark. The existence of this policy on a healthy 20-something set off even more alarms. The problem was, stories of bar fights and a sketchy insurance policy weren't enough to arrest Dale. Nolan needed a more direct tie between Dr. John Dale Cavanus and his son's tragic murder. The hole in the case agitated the detective, and Mark's brothers too. For the next year, Kevin frequently asked Nolan for updates to no avail. And Sean, in particular, had a hard time handling things. The second youngest cavernous son began experiencing night terrors. His waking life was no easier. The 16-year-old started drinking to dull the pain of Mark's death. At times, he'd cling to his mother, sobbing, and wonder aloud if they'd ever find his brother's killer. He also fought harder for his father's love. Ironic, since with Mark gone, Dale now seemed to focus the brunt of his abuse on Sean. Just like with Mark, Dale called Sean an embarrassment and said he was doing nothing with his life. Perhaps Sean blamed himself for Dale's abuse. Maybe he thought his father's disapproval was because he'd gained weight since Mark's death or because he dropped out of high school. In Sean's mind, there had to be a reason his father hated him. What the teenager didn't realize was that his father was the problem. 
so he tried continuously to mend their relationship. He often called Dale just to tell him he loved him. Dale usually hung up. Sean continued to struggle, and in 1983, 21-year-old Sean entered rehab for alcoholism. That same year, six years after Mark's death, Detective Nolan had a major stroke of luck. During a pharmaceutical drug arrest, Nolan learned about a dealer, who we'll call Rick, who also happened to work on Dr. Dale's farm. Nolan wondered if Dale was Rick's pharmaceutical supplier. As a doctor, he would have access. It was a long shot, but if Nolan could charge Dale with this, it might also lead to discoveries about Mark's murder. He enlisted a wired informant to arrange a drug deal with Rick. They set a meetup to take place on Dale's farm. Once there, Rick casually revealed that Dale supplied him with nearly 30 grams of the opiate morphine. Morphine is useful for pain management in controlled healthcare settings, but on the streets, it can be incredibly dangerous. It's a drug that has a high potential for overdose, and in the wrong hands, it can cause extreme drowsiness and motor impairment, respiratory failure, and death. For supplying drug dealers with opiates, Dr. Cavanis was risking permanent license revocation, along with a likely stint in prison. It's ironic that a doctor who supposedly cared so much for his community was letting this stuff loose onto the streets. As horrendous as this was, it wasn't the end of Dale's dubious behavior. Rick also told the informant that he incinerated a trailer that Dale owned at the doctor's request. Through savvy detective work, Nolan later confirmed that Dale collected insurance money for this so-called accident. For Agent Nolan, this was finally enough to arrest Dr. John Dale Cavanus. However, when Nolan requested warrants for both Rick and Dale, the judge would only grant one for Rick. Nolan still didn't have enough on the doctor, only Rick's word, which was considered less than reliable. But Nolan wasn't giving up. Once he had Rick in custody, he played the wire recording of his confessions. Then, Nolan told Rick he was looking at 10 years. But they could strike a deal if he gave an official statement on Dale's involvement. But Rick was no snitch. It was another dead end. And Dr. Dale continued to walk free. He continued as he always had, taking advantage of others. One day, he approached his three sons with some documents. He told them he'd made a sizable investment in their names, a guaranteed nest for their futures. Even better, he would make the yearly contributions. They just had to sign on the dotted line. He did admit, though, the gesture wasn't entirely generous. He planned to write the payments off on his taxes. Kevin was wary. He scanned the documents. Dale noticed his son's scrutiny and even called his broker to explain what a great deal it was. Kevin tuned them both out and kept reading. Finally, he realized that the documents weren't at all what his father claimed. They were life insurance policies for his three living sons. Coming up, tragedy strikes the Cavernous family again.
Now, back to the story. When Mark Cavanus was murdered in 1977, his father, Dr. John Dale Cavanus, became the prime suspect. However, detectives couldn't find enough evidence to arrest him. A few years after the tragedy, Kevin Cavanus caught his dad Dale trying to trick him and his other two brothers, Sean and Patrick, into signing life insurance policies. Their father was listed as the beneficiary, just like he had been on the policy he took out on Mark two months before Mark died. Even stranger, Kevin noticed that this policy contained a non-smoking clause, despite Sean and Kevin being smokers. Dale ignored this contradiction, probably because life insurance for smokers has higher payments than for non-smokers. And as we've covered, Dale was quite comfortable with committing insurance fraud for his own gain. Kevin ultimately shrugged off the clause and the fact that his father initially lied. He, Sean and Patrick signed the policy. It's possible that as life carried on following Mark's death, the family's suspicions towards Dale diminished. Kevin got married, and so did Marion. She married a man named Les Green. Les was a successful businessman, devoted father, and everything that Dale wasn't. She and Patrick moved in with him in Wisconsin. Sean hated to see her leave St. Louis, but Marion thought some independence would be good for him. She helped him find an apartment, and Dale paid at least part of his rent until Sean got a job. Despite helping Sean, Dale's finances were still in ruins, maybe worse than ever, because by the late 1970s, his years of health insurance fraud at his practice had come to light. It's unclear exactly how, but the courts finally caught up to him. Insurance fraud or healthcare fraud is a serious felony offense that can come with severe repercussions. Considering the scope and scale of Dale's scam, it's quite possible that he could have been permanently stripped of his medical license and would have to face some time behind bars. There are instances where doctors can jump through metaphorical hoops in order to rehabilitate or appease their state's medical board. However, a doctor would need some serious luck to get out of a situation like the one Dale found himself in. The degree of his crimes warranted real and lasting consequences. Dale faced felony charges for deceptive medical practices. His lawyers postponed the trial for years. Around 1980, Dale apparently decided he'd put off the inevitable long enough, and he pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor. He got a year's probation and some fines. Dale likely felt vindicated. Of course, he got off light. He was beloved. He could continue to practice medicine and remain the town's hero. Of course, Dale's sons still didn't see him as a hero. But toward the end of 1984, his relationship with Sean did seem to improve. Dale started calling Sean regularly to check in on him. One day, he even surprised him with a visit, and the duo happily went out for drinks. While Sean cherished these moments, they worried his brother Kevin. Kevin knew that Sean was making progress with his alcohol problems. Drinking with their father could cause him to backslide into addiction. But Kevin also couldn't deny that Sean seemed happier. 
Maybe their father was finally showing some sort of change. Plus, Sean was gaining a support system in his own right. His neighbors, Ralph and Peggy Creck, became friends. And even though they were all fairly close in age, the couple began to treat Sean as a son. They described him as a loving, wonderful person. So it's no surprise they took note when strange things started to occur. One night in December of 1984, Peggy was driving home when she spotted a car following her. After every turn, the same dark Oldsmobile crept into her rear view. She finally got home, parked, and waited for a tense moment. Then, the car pulled up next to her. Peggy squinted to get a good look at the driver, but it was too dark to see. Suddenly, they zoomed off. Peggy ran into her apartment and locked the door. She divulged everything to Ralph, then the two peered out the window to see if the car was still nearby. It was. The car had turned around and was coming back down the road. Once it reached the end, it turned back around again, like a shark circling in. Finally, it parked a short distance away from Peggy and Ralph's apartment, and the driver stepped out. Then the couple noticed Sean Cavanus walking down the sidewalk toward the car. Before they could alert him, Sean approached the driver and hugged him. The two men walked toward the building, and Peggy realized the driver was Dale. The father and son went up to Sean's place. A moment later, Peggy and Ralph heard music. Sean and Dale's drunken singing bled through the walls well after midnight. Sometime after 1 a.m., Ralph heard Sean and Dale leave the building. He found it odd because Sean rarely went out late at night, but he figured with Dale visiting, they were just continuing the party elsewhere. Ralph was finally able to get some shut-eye. The next evening, December 13, 1984, Kevin Cavanus's phone rang. When he picked up, Detective Dave Barron of the St. Louis County Police Department was on the other end. Detective Barron took a deep breath and said, I'm very sorry. I'm afraid that your brother Sean is dead. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Alistair. We'll be back next week with part two on Dr. Dale Kavanagh. He once again becomes a prime suspect, but the road to pinning him goes further than detectives ever thought. For more information on Dr. John Dale Kavanagh, among the many sources we used, we found Murder in Little Egypt, the true story of a father's ultimate betrayal by Darcy O'Brien, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Brandon Rizzuto, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Maggie Admire. 
fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. Medical Murder stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.